want you to think about three words this morning. And the title of the message is this. And we're going to focus on a, on a small snippet of, of a verse and then branch out a little bit. We're in, that, in the first chapter of Second Peter. I want to kind of work through this text and see how far the Lord leads us to go. But just say this with me. Make every effort. In fact, let's, let's, let's do the emphasis like this. Make every effort. Because he writes this, and this is, follows on the heels of what we talked about last week. For this reason, make every effort to do what? He says, for this reason, what? Make. Yeah, come on, Alice, get with it. <laughs> for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. The uh, ESV renders it this way. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. The message renders it this way. So don't lose a minute in building on what you've been given. It says, for this reason. And so when you see that kind of a clause, often we'll see the word therefore. And, you know, the old, you'll always hear preachers say, when you see the word therefore, you always ask, what is it there for? But Peter is pretty plain here. He says, for this reason. And so we say, if, if we came at this text unprepared, we would say, for what reason? This is why context is wonderful. And the reason is what we read last week in verses 3 and 4. And, and I'll read it to you once again. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things, say all things, all things. or everything, yeah. that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he, he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire or sinful desire. That's the reason, okay? Because of what I just read, that's why he says... Make every effort to add to your faith. Assurance has been granted to us that everything we need has been provided for us through Christ. That his divine power has granted us everything we need, we need in order to experience life as God has intended it. Promises have been extended to us that empower and enable us to attain the kind of spiritual connection with God that allows us to escape the corruption that results from unrestrained and misdirected and evil desire. Peter is trying to get his readers to, to, to understand that in light of these promises that we've just referenced, these realities, they are to make every effort. There is effort that is the appropriate response. They're to respond to the promises with a kind of diligence, a vigorous and rigorous pursuit of that which God has placed before us. He says, make every effort. You know what? You tend to work hard when you have a dream in front of you. You work hard when you have a vision before you. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says simply this, without a vision, the people perish. 
And I've heard often cited that there's a translation that says, without the vision, the people are unrestrained. And what gives energy and what gives focus, what gives direction to our lives is having revelation, having a dream, having vision. For the sake of our discussion this morning, I'll call it a kingdom dream. A dream or a vision or insight or revelation or a goal or something in front of you that is inspired by the kingdom of God, by the word of God, by, by revealed truth. And you know what? The most miserable people in, in the world are those who have no aspirations. How many of you know that's right? Those who have nothing to look forward to. Those who have no dream, no purpose, no goals. We observe that people who are stuck in, in those kinds of places, they tend to lose their motivation. They tend to be devoid of focus because we're energized by insight, by revelation, by, by the promise, by the dream of something better. How many of you know what I'm talking about? American Christianity, Western Christianity, but particularly, particularly American Christianity, celebrates this message that describes this dream or this vision in terms of money and power and prestige and status. God wants you rich. God wants you happy. God wants you healthy. And God does supply our needs. And God does heal us physically. And God does give us emotional stability and blesses us emotionally and relation, relationally. God does wish for us peace and fills our life with love and joy. But Peter is conveying a kind of vision of life that is above and beyond the mundane, and, and it, it's a life freed from the dominion of sin, a life lived in union with our Creator. As Jesus describes it, it is life lived to the full in John 10, 10. It is life more abundantly. It's a life free from guilt and shame. It's a life free from anger and bitterness. It's a life ruled by peace. It's a life lived in the constant, constant assurance that God loves you. It's life lived with a purpose, a purpose beyond ourselves, beyond our momentary and temporary and temporal gratification. It is life in union with God, your Father, your Creator, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This kingdom dream that God places before us is that we will know Christ intimately and deeply, and that through knowing him, we will become partakers of his divine nature. And so since we have these promises, since we have this possibility, we are to do something. Turn to somebody and say, you got to do something. We are to do something. We are, in this case, to make every effort to add to our faith. I get my sleeves right here. Now, this, this idea of making every effort is found in a few other places in the New Testament. Thinking about Romans 14, 19, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. How about that? In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then Peter 
coming back to 2 Peter, says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, same idea, right, same concept, you're looking forward to something. There's something coming. There's something that's been promised. There's something that God has given you. There's something that he has said, I will do. There are some conditions involved, and this is what you do. Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Make every effort. Growth in our lives will come, right? But growth comes through conscious, consistent, concerted effort. We have certain qualities and certain things that God has given us that can grow in increasing measure, but it will all come through effort of some kind. And it's, a, it's kind, of a, 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 kind of a paradox here because we boldly maintain and proclaim the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, that there's nothing we can add to that, that finished work of the cross, that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cr- cross I cling. Yet on the other hand, once we have been saved, once we've come into a knowledge of Jesus as our Savior, once we have transitioned into the kingdom of God, growth will only come by effort. The realization of the promise comes by effort. The fulfillment of what God has planned for us comes through some kind of intensive effort on our part. There's no quick fix for our condition. There is no quick fix for our character for our emotions, for our lives. The process of growing into Christ-likeness and being able to live a life that truly honors and glorifies God, it will require time and effort. And we don't always like to hear this. I would like, thank you, to be changed now without without all of this talk of effort and discipline and spiritual disciplines and, 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 and a long obedience in the same direction and all this stuff, I, I can't, I have it now. Can you lay your hands on me and give it to me now? That's why we have to be careful about some of the, uh, we believe in the laying on of hands and there's a whole lot of reasons we do that and we believe we got the oil handy here, right? And all that kind of good stuff. On the other hand, there's some people think that because somebody with some kind of anointing puts their hand on them, that that's going to that's gonna reshape a character that, that you spent 30 years misshaping. <laughs> You're going to correct emotional damage that was inflicted upon you over the last 50 years that, that some, 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 some guy with slick hair lays his hand on your head and, 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 and you're going to grow from being a spiritual infant to being a, a spiritual giant, as they used to say in the church. I grew up with spiritual giant. I used to have a picture of that, you know, real large people. It doesn't work that way. But we want it to happen now. Is there a pill for that? The whole infomercial late night TV thing is about basically there's a whole lot of things that they would like to sell you pills for that will they will fix your situation real quick and uh, for a lot of it is what's called the placebo effect take the sugar pill you don't know but you felt better can you know can I can I get a pill for that can I get get a quick fix for that 
And they always, tell, they always show you, you know, they show you all the things that will help you lose weight and get in shape really quick, you know. But they don't remind you of, of, of the fact. They don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't inform you as to what it's going to feel like getting up in the morning to do the P90X and making yourself, motivating yourself to do it. And the fact that they didn't lose, them folks didn't lose all that weight and get cut like that just doing P90X when they were all out of shape. A lot of them folks were in the gym doing some doing some other stuff, and then they 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 don't eat like and then they don't and then they tell you there's a diet plan and that's going to be harder than the P90X for most of y'all. <laughs> but we just but we want the, the idea that we get it now. If I get the if I get what's the the total gym, I'll look like Chuck Norris, even the beard, you know. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight. There's no quick fix. When we see believers who have attained a degree of maturity, you ever look at some other Christians around and say, well, I really admire that sister's walk. I admire that brother's, his temperament, his maturity, the way he conducts himself, the way he he functions in ministry, the way he serves. When you see people like that whose lives you admire, sometimes we have this impression that God just changed them overnight. That they woke up one day and they were like all hooked up and together in God. But it doesn't work like that. What we fail to see is that there were oftentimes many years of challenges, many years of discipline, many years of effort that they have endured to get to where they are. The effort that they have expended has been tremendous, but it pays off when I was a kid. You say, you always talk about when you was, yeah, I was good when I was a kid. I I wouldn't want to be a kid now, but when I was a kid, it was good to be a kid. But they used to say this in church, it pays to serve Jesus. And they weren't talking about money. They were talking about the fact that it is fulfilling and it is a blessing to be, to be involved in the things of the Lord, to be involved in ministry. And people find that to be the case when they've taken the time to expend the energy to serve Jesus and to love Jesus and to grow in Jesus and to, and, and to embrace all of the promises of God. We know that you're a new creation, and that's wonderful that you would affirm that. You say, I'm a new creature. Yeah, you know, you, I, I stopped using the King James language version because I say, I'm a new creature. I always see it's like Godzilla or something, you know, I'm a new, or some kind of uh, salamander or something. But I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I know you are, and when you get saved, if any man is in Christ, he is a new cre- creation. He or she, any person, that moment, in that instance, you have been changed. You have been, you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been changed from one realm to another. But the thing about it is there are other things about you that haven't changed immediately. You're a new creation. Jesus can do wonderful things, and sometimes he will give you breakthroughs, and you will progress quickly. And sometimes he will break bondage in your life in the moment and break habits in your life in the moment and bring transformation in some areas. But really, if you want to tell the truth about it, and we don't want to deceive one another, do we? There is no shortcut to maturity. No shortcut to maturity. Francis de Sales describes it like this. The angels upon Jacob's ladder had wings, yet they flew not, but ascended and descended in order from one step to another. The soul that rises from sin to devotion may be compared to the dawning of the day, which at its approach does not expel the darkness instantaneously, but only little by little. Someone else, Dr. William C. DeVries, he was a doctor who installed the first artificial heart in the human body. He said this. He said he practiced this kind of operation and installation 
I'm pretty, if you have an artificial heart, you're probably glad he did. He said he practiced on animals, poor animals, many times. And he explained it like this. He said, the reason you practice so much is so that you will do things automatically the same way every time. That's, that's, Greg, that's why this, this game of golf is so daunting for me. Because once you get your swing down, once you get a swing, you, 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 muscle memory and all that, you, it's kind of natural. And I got to a certain point, and it isn't bad, but it takes a lot of work to get to that. You hit a lot of golf balls, and you make a lot of mistakes. And if you're doing it wrong, you're learning to do it wrong, and you're getting going deeper into the error zone, and you've got to get somebody to bring you out of the error zone and show you how to do it right. But what it's all about is practicing, and righteousness and holiness is like that. You practice doing the right thing, and you practice, you make this effort so that you learn to do the things automatically the same way every time. It's like things like typing. You know, it's like I know some of you have to type. Everybody has to type now because everybody uses devices. And some of you are good typists. Some of you know that I am a real good typist. I'm not bragging. It's just fact. At one point, I typed, it was called word processing by that time, for a living. And I don't have to look at the keyboard to type. I don't think about where the keys are. I can look at the copy and type. I can put my eyes closed. The same with playing piano. It's like there, there are some things I have to think about and work at. There are other things I can sit down without thinking hardly at all. I could be thinking about the Dodgers, and I could probably follow a gospel singer singing a hymn. Because I've done it so many times for so many years that some things become like habit. And you do them automatically the same way every time. And that's kind of the goal what we're looking at. Because you do it so often that it becomes a part of you. I mean, if you have attained skills that, and, that's, and that's how you attain them, whether it is a golf swing or whether it was learning how to play soccer or whether it was a basketball shot or whatever it was, you've done it enough until it became second nature, and you don't have to think of it. You walk on a basketball court, and you're talking to somebody, you just go, boop, and it goes in. I walk on a basketball court, I throw the ball, it goes way over here. And I don't think I've spent two hours of my whole life shooting baskets. But for some of you, it's like, oh, it's no thing. You're talking to somebody, boop, boop, you know. We can think and act like Christ to the extent that it is such, it becomes such a part of us that we do it automatically where we begin to behave and live like Jesus almost unconsciously. So that's probably why it's possible for Jesus to say what he said in Matthew 5, 48. He says, be, and these words, don't let these words scare you, okay? But he says, be perfect, therefore, as, my, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus, in calling his disciples to be perfect, is not saying perfect doesn't mean in the sense of, flawlessness, it, it has the connotation in, its, in the New Testament of maturity and completeness. You understand what I'm saying? If I tell you be perfect, you'll become obsessive compulsive. <laughs> and don't let me get started about the thing that sometimes when you try to do things right, people want to label you as a perfectionist. No, I'm not a perfectionist. I just, I'm, I'm a, just want to do things right. So, you know, we have all kinds of strange relationships with perfection in our culture on that level. But Jesus, what he's saying is be perfect, be complete, be mature as your father is mature. Be complete as your father is complete. And the reason why is because 
you can grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the practice of the, of, of, of the right things and through making this effort to, to, uh, to add to your faith, you can grow in the things of the Lord to where it becomes kind of a natural response. Let me, let me just point your attention to a couple incidents with Jesus real quick. Number one, in Matthew 17, there's a boy possessed by a demon and the disciples they can't deliver the boy. They can't cast the demon out. And Jesus rebukes the demon, and it comes out of the boy right away like that. And, and Jesus doesn't say, and so they, they, they came to Jesus, and they say, why, why couldn't we drive it out? He didn't say, because you ain't Jesus. <laughs> but what does he say in Matthew 17? He says, but this kind comes out, does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And then in, in, uh, in Jesus last night with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the disciples are full of good intentions, but they can't stay awake and pray with Jesus, right? And Jesus says this to them. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And note, note these words. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the simple and plain meaning of these comments is that by engaging in a certain type of action, fasting and praying in one case, watching and praying in another case, they would be able to attain a level of spiritual alertness and power that they otherwise would not realize. And he's saying that to us as well. There are some things that we do. There are some actions that we take. There's some effort that we exert that will enable us to attain a level of spiritual power in our lives that otherwise we won't realize. Sometimes we look at people around us, why? Are they so strong? Why are they, why are, are their prayers so efficacious? Why are they so, why are they, do they seem so free? It's not necessarily because they were favored with some special spiritual gene for strength or some special hookup for freedom, but often it is because they have exerted the effort through things like fasting and praying, watching and praying, through spiritual disciplines, through simple obedience, in order to develop habits that serve them well. If they had watched and prayed, they would have had the, the, the required power to stand firm when it was needed. And without those kinds of disciplines they wouldn't be able to experience the strength to overcome the devil or to overcome temptation. But these kinds of disciplines help us to respond properly in the moment when we're put on the spot. When you're faced with temptation, you, you can't prepare for it in the moment of temptation. You don't prepare for, for the trial at the doorstep of the trial. You prepare for the trial in the hours and days and months and weeks preceding the trial. Disciplines like prayer and fasting or whatever other disciplines of the Spirit that we embrace help us to respond properly in the moment. They enable us to become like Christ, to act like Christ. And that's the goal of our effort. And, the effort, and that effort is best expressed in, in something we call spiritual disciplines. I haven't talked a lot about <clears throat> spiritual dif- disciplines in recent months, but you know that I have historically spoken about them a lot and taught uh, on that subject. John Ortberg describes it well. He states that our goal is to be able to, listen to these words, he says, do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right spirit. 
You like that? It says, do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right spirit. It doesn't have much to do with spirituality in the abstract sense. Let me see if I can help you to understand what I mean by that. When I say spirituality in the abstract sense, sometimes we say spirituality, we don't know what we're talking about and nobody we're talking to knows what we're talking about, right? Sometimes we talk about things being spiritual. Sometimes they just have an aura or sometimes they're just, it's just soulish kind of uh, emotional energy. Or we can talk about someone being spiritual because they're aloof and kind of, whole, you know, they seem holier than thou or they go like that when you talk to them. And when you say hi, they don't, you say, how you doing? They say, praise the Lord. You know, spirituality, we're not talking about spirituality in some sort of abstract sense, but we're talking about spirituality in a kind of concrete sense, lived out and walked out. The Pharisees and the scribes in the, in, in the Gospels, they, they, they had a lot of good disciplines and they had this kind of abstract spirituality, but they weren't like Jesus at all. Jesus tells the disciples, says, you need to fast and pray or else you will be weak tells us that as well. You need to fast and pray or else you will, if you can't fast, you at least need to pray. You need to read your Bible. You need to grow in grace or in else, or else you will be weak. And so it's because we are weak and we're vulnerable and because we need to grow and because we're, some, we're often immature and because we, we are, are sometimes what the Bible describes as carnal. It means that we're fleshly, we're earthly, we're just like regular Street folk, instead of folks whose heart and mind and disposition and attitude and character is being changed. It's precisely because of those realities that we need, the, we need spiritual disciplines. This is why we need to, in the words of our text, make every effort to add to our faith. Are you with me? The, the greatest fulfillment of, you, of human life is this, to follow and to know Jesus Christ. That's where it is. That's where it is. We've been searching for it all over the place everywhere, but that's where it's found, in Jesus. Dallas Willard describes it as life on the highest plane. And that's what Peter's talking about in First Peter, uh, 2 Peter, the, the first chapter. He's talking about this idea of, of these precious promises and being, being enabled to partake of the divine nature. We're living on a higher plane. John Ortberg again says this, following Jesus simply means learning from him how to arrange my life around activities that enable me to live in the fruit of the Spirit. Someone else noted that uh, the hindrance to true spiritual growth is not unwillingness. Let me ask you this question. How, how many of you want to be like Christ? I think if, if you were to respond, and I don't think anybody is, is, is play acting when they raise their hand. I think that all of us want to be like Jesus. I think that all of us want to do better. I think that all of us want to grow up in our faith. All of us want to, to, to be mature. We're just like the disciples, the followers of Jesus. They were following, following him because they recognized that he had something that they, that they wanted, that he, that he had something that was the fulfillment of every desire and every, every dream, everything that they, they had ever harbored. But the problem was this. It wasn't that they were unwilling, but it was that they, the, the spirit is, is, is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what we need to do is to, to shore up our weak flesh with, with supporting tools and with things like with reminders and encouragement and, and various practices and sometimes habits. And I know because we are, you know, our church lineage is kind of we're, we're Pentecostal slash charismatic. 
uh, then the broader umbrella of being kind of evangelical, and that, which a label that I'm kind of a little bit struggling with right now, and then uh, Orthodox Christian folks, you know, and we're, we're Christians, and, you know, and, and, and what happens is we, the, the strain of, 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 of Christianity that we are part of, particularly the charismatic Pentecostal part of it, and the kind of, you know, we, we don't like the idea of habits, we don't like the idea of routine. We don't like the, and our culture doesn't like the idea of commitments. And so you look at people that, that, you know, you look at Episcopalians who pray the daily office and you say, oh, that's an old ritual. Well, at least they read scripture two times a day or three times a day. And they pray, whether the prayers are written or they made them up, they did it every day. You look at our, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and you look at all the structure and all the things that they do. They're they just doing that because they got to. But yeah, but they're doing it. So then our excuse, well, I, I, they're doing it because they got to. I'm not doing it because I don't have to. I'll just do it when the spirit moves, which tends to be sometimes infrequently. Oh, you don't hear me. I, I'm, I'm just talking to myself. Do you, you get what I'm saying? We need, we need the structures, everything we can bring to the table to help us in this process. We need church ministry. We need... Uh, community. We need accountability. We need to build a life where we where we have the support system in place to enable us to 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 make this effort and to attain this growth. So, how do we make this effort that Peter's talking about? Again, John Ortberg, and I remember a few years ago we were reading our men's ministry was working through this book, "The Life You've Always Wanted," in which he does a very simplified and and, and contemporary. Uh, treatment of spiritual disciplines. He in, he maintains that things like this, spiritual disciplines, like celebration. That's what we did today, right? When you when you worship and praise God, God is shaping you. That's you're you're making effort to add to your faith. Things like, in his words, slowing. What does that mean? Please not on the freeway in the fast lane when I'm driving behind you. There's this new pandemic of people because they're texting now, and you're in the fast lane, and you're trying to go 65 miles an hour. And, and, and then you, all of a sudden, there's somebody in front of you, and they're doing like, I mean, literally, I've come up on people doing like 45, 50 miles in the fast lane. When the whole freeway is moving, like, you know, over the speed limit, and it's the craziest thing. It's like, would you put your phone away? And you always, you'll always see that have their head down. Slowing, though, for us means this. It means slowing down the pace of your life so that you can hear God speak to you. You know what I'm talking about? It means saying no to some commitments that you don't need to make. It means taking some time and, and not running so much so that you can sit still and open your Bible and you can talk to God and allow God to talk to, to speak to you. Things like prayer. And maybe going deeper into our pursuit of prayer than we, we historically have. Things like, like serving others. That's a, that, that's a discipline through which God works to shape our lives. It's a way we make every effort to add to our faith. Things like confession. Sometimes we won't get free until we share with someone else. And, and Ortberg suggests three steps. I want one at a time. Thank you, Mr. Computer. That um, come from thinking backward. Not backwards thinking, but thinking backward. First thing you do is ask what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Look at Jesus, right? Do you want to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. Look at his life. 
Look at his attitudes. Look at his deeds. Listen to his speech. Observe his character. And then that becomes the, the paradigm, the model that we're seeking. Then we need to ask this question. What barriers would keep us from that kind of life? In other words, if you have a vision in your life of what it looks like to be like Jesus and you're shooting for that, and that's your aspiration, that's your goal, the next question would be to ask, what barriers are keeping me from the kind of life that I believe God wants me to live? You hear me? And then finally, we ask the question, or we... Finally, rather, we discover what practices or experiences or relationships can help us overcome these barriers. If there is spiritual malaise in your life or if you're failing to grow as you know you should, you've got to begin to look at your life analytically and critically and discover what practices, what experiences, or what relationships can help you to overcome the barriers to you becoming the person that Jesus wants you to become, that he's trying to make of you. So you consider your own barriers, things that are obstructing and constricting your growth. Some of, some of us will find that there are things that we're spending much, too much time doing and other things we're not spending enough time doing. And this is how spiritual disciplines, and this is a short lesson here, but this is how spiritual disciplines kind of work. This is what the principle that you apply here. If you have a problem not doing something, then what you do is embrace disciplines. So, for instance, if you have a problem not loving and not caring and not serving, then you embrace practices that involve doing. Because you train yourself. If you are the kind of person that is selfish and self-centered and don't do anything for any, anybody else, you, come, you go somewhere, you come down to the outreach and you serve somebody and do stuff that you don't normally do because you're learning and cultivating the habit of doing something. And so you take disciplines of doing to counteract not doing. If, yeah. If your problem is doing something, like if you always... You know, maybe you're always boasting, braggy. I like the way you make a, you know, makeup words. Then you practice disciplines of not doing things. Some that we, as from our tradition, don't know much about. This, the discipline of solitude. It's a big commitment, isn't it, to go somewhere and be by yourself for eight, twelve hours, intentionally, and only God. Disciplines of silence, where you don't speak. I mean, said these are spiritual. These are things that Christians have done for, for, two millennia, as ways of, of of making every effort to add to their faith. You understand? So you get the principle. If your problem is doing something, you use a subtractive discipline. If your problem is not doing, then you use an additive discipline. Ortberg suggested the problem could be as simple as getting more sleep. How many of you know that's that could be a real big factor? That's a big issue in our society today. It really is. You can't worship well. You can't pray well when you lack sleep. Remember before Elijah was going to spend this prolonged time in, uh, uh, he was to spend this prolonged time in solitude and prayer at Mount Horeb, and the angel of the Lord had him take not one but two long naps. Some of you, if you would get the proper sleep, or if you just go home and take a nap, sometimes your, your, your disposition and your outlook would look a lot better. Elijah was physically tired, and that affected him spiritually. It affected you and me as well. He was so depressed, he wanted to die. I wonder why. You could do something like this. Remember, we had a journaling uh, class conducted by our Octavi Allison a couple months ago. Spiritual journaling. You could do something like learning to keep a journal or a spiritual diary, a prayer journal. You could send right out your thoughts and, and, and your... And, and, and 
record your communion and interaction with God. And we may exert effort through more faithful church attendance, more focus on worship, new habits and routines that foster spiritual growth. But the bottom line is this. You are a child of promise. God has a glorious future for you that consists not just of getting but of becoming. Because you've already been given everything you need through Christ. And so the challenge is that of realizing all that God has given you in Christ Jesus. I'm about done, but think of it this way. When you fall in love with someone, with that special someone, I, I know, none of y'all know anything about being in love, huh? Yeah, you're motivated by feelings, emotion, and other things. But there's also the motivation of promise. That relationship promises companionship. It promises things like potentially children and a family. The joy of intimacy, the the banishment of loneliness, the security of companionship. The dream of establishing a family, something greater than the two parties, the two lovers involved. Young couples fall in love and get married and move forward because beyond just the puppy love and beyond the Google eyes and beyond the, the goosebumps, which may just be because the air is too cold in the church, beyond all of that. There is a dream, a vision, a promise that, that, that is set before them. There's something you work for. And so that promise motivates action, right? I remember how hard I worked to get my business in order to get married. I was a little young. My wife was even younger still. And her parents were a little bit opposed to it because she was so young. And they had other dreams for her. But I had a dream and a vision for her life and for mine as well. And I believe it was a vision. I believe God gave her to me. I really did. I did then as I, as I know now. I, I, I had that sense. And, and I remember how hard I worked to get my business in order to get married. I remember how I strategized and planned how I got the best job I could get. I worked on myself and I worked on my situation. I made the relationship a priority because I had this promise that, wow, I could be married to this beautiful young lady who has this wonderful spirit. Who will, who, and together we can enjoy the blessings of family and we can, and, and we can live our lives out and, and do all those cool things. And so I worked on a relationship. I worked on communication. I got the best job I could as marriage approach. I worked to find a place to live, and she was uh, kind of out. She was going to, uh, to college, at, which is now Vanguard University, Southern California College, in Costa Mesa. She was on campus. So we, I got, we, got, we lived there in Costa Mesa, got our first apartment there. Man, my rent was $135 a month. <laughs> Two bedrooms, upstairs, downstairs on Joanne Street in Costa Mesa. And it was, and that was like, and, you know, and, and, and we, we got it hooked up. We had to get, we got the furniture, you know, my parents gave us some stuff. We went over to Levitt's and, and loaded up my little pickup truck and, and we got stuff and we got the place furnished and we wanted to attain the things and we got all the wedding gifts and, and we had to do the wedding. And then, then I spent the next four decades working on building and maintaining a marriage, raising the kids and that were the fruit of the relationship, loving, nurturing, and caring for my wife, even though she's limping today, that's not my fault. All because of a promise. All because of a dream. Do you you hear me this morning? 
We all have before us a kingdom dream of becoming more and more like Jesus, partaking of the divine nature as we grow into deeper union with God in Christ. The promise of immortality, the promise of transitioning from this life into the next with confidence rather than fear, the promise of realizing purpose and meaning in what might otherwise be a purposeless and meaningless life, The promise of being freed from the power of sin, from sinful desires, from lust. The promise of becoming better than I am. The promise of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So make every effort to add to your faith. Don't neglect the things that are most important in life. Fend off spiritual apathy and laziness. Fight it like the plague. There's a parallel idea in 2 Corinthians 6 going into chapter 7. Because in parallel, real quick, in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 16b, which is the second section of the verse, and going through the end of the chapter, this is what Paul writes. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. He's talking about a promise here. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Man, aren't those inspiring? To, for God to speak over a bunch of, of, of Semitic heathens that I will be your God and you will be my people. And like, what that mean? But it sounds good. And sometimes for us to hear those words, God saying, I will come alongside you. I will father you. I will love you. I will shepherd you. I will bless you. I will keep... I will be your companion. I will be that friend that never leaves you. Wait, so Paul says, he says, this is the, the uh, promise that God made. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Then I will, then, another promise, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the end of chapter 6. Now, in the original text, there are no chapter and verse divisions, so it's, it's a bad place for a chapter division because the next verse in 7-1 is this. Since, therefore, for this reason, he says, since we have these promises. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's the same idea. God's put something before. You've got something to live for. You've got a purpose. Then let's go on and go on and do what you got to do to get it right and to get in the zone and to realize what God is, what Jesus died to give you. There's a promise and it's yours. And nobody, nobody can keep you from it except you. He said before you an open door that no man can shut. So since we have, back in the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1, since we have these great and precious promises, and since he has given us everything we need, we make every effort to add to our faith. Faith is not just the end, but it is the foundation upon which we will build. And next week we'll explore just what it is Peter says we are to add to our faith. But we're done now. Let's pray.